Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, We have uh, been reading Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church together, and this morning uh, we will finish it together. Paul had founded the church there, but he had to leave that city uh, a lot sooner than he had wanted to. And so he wrote this letter after he found out that they were doing pretty good in his absence. He wrote uh, with relief, he wrote with joy to encourage them, and they're very young. Uh, very fresh faith, and he wrote to teach them about things that Christians everywhere wonder about all the time. So we're going to read the back half of chapter 5 together this morning where Paul hits them uh, with a lot of stuff, uh, almost all of which is about how they should live together in community, how they should live together as a church. So let me read that for us. I'll read 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 12 through 18. It's printed in the order of worship if you want to follow along there. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now uh, that you would meet us in this place as we talk about this word that we've just read and heard together. We know that you can do through uh, the foolishness of this moment, the foolishness of preaching, you can do amazing things. You can do things that we couldn't even begin to comprehend, like, like we already said in the call to worship this morning. You can meet us and speak directly to us as a people, as individuals. And so we ask that you would, that you'd comfort us, that you would convict us, that you would uh, compel us, that you would meet us all. Um, We believe, as we sang, that you are able to keep us from falling. And so we ask that we would find that to be true in this moment. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, back at the end of uh, 2011, we had a guest preacher here on a Sunday during Advent. Uh, It wasn't someone from one of our sister churches. It wasn't someone from around here. It was someone who at the time uh, pastored a pretty uh, prominent Presbyterian church in uh, Texas. I don't exactly remember how we pulled off having him here. It was unusual. Um, But I do remember that he preached on John 1, and I do also remember one thing about his sermon pretty clearly. 
uh, about two-thirds of the way through that sermon, he said something, and when he said it, I thought to myself, that sounds like something I might say. It was uh, just the way that he said it sounded like how I process things and think about things and sometimes uh, how I phrase things. And he kept going, and as he kept uh, talking, it kept sounding an awful lot like me. Um, And he kept going, and it started to get really weird in my head because I was thinking, "This, this sounds like me. And then it finally dawned on me, the reason it sounds like me is because it actually is me. He is quoting lines from a sermon that I had preached a couple weeks before he came. Uh, And then I recognized myself in in what he was saying. And then finally, of course, he let everyone in on the fact that he was quoting me, which is uh, a pretty good trick, the oldest trick in the book, if you think about it, flatter the host. Uh, And it was super effective because here I am more than a decade later still thinking about him, still talking about him. Well played, well played. Uh, But the reason that I thought about that experience this week is because of that feeling I had as he talked, that feeling of recognizing myself in his words, these words that he was saying painted a picture, and I could see myself in the corner of that picture. And I think that that's a pretty helpful way to think about the part of the letter that we just read together. Paul is wrapping things up, and it is like a a waterfall of stuff. It's this preponderance of things to do and, and to be. A lot of his letters end like that. And I don't think that that's just Paul uh, trying to get in a bunch of stuff that he forgot about at the very end before the paper runs out. I mean, Paul can write a longer letter if he wants to. He's happy to. I think instead when Paul does that, he's painting a picture. Each of those lines matter for sure. Each of the individual things that he says matter for sure. But in the end, it's this picture. And he wants his friends and he wants us to look at it and to have it dawn on us, oh, that is, that's us. <laughs> He's talking about us. That's, that's who we are. That's how we live. He's painted a picture of us. And I think that's a pretty uh, great way to teach ethics, to allure us with the beauty of a thing so that we want to be that thing and participate in that thing, and that is the church, a wildly beautiful presence in a broken world, a peaceful, reconciling, mutually supportive people with eyes and ears and hands open to God and to one another and to the world around us. That's the church. (laughs) That's who we are. So I want to look at some of these trees that Paul paints and then step back and look at the forest that he has left us with too. And I'll uh, begin by being honest and telling you that there was part of me uh, that wanted to skip over verse 12 and the first part of verse 13 because they are about respect and esteem for those who work in the church. It just seems like slightly self-serving for a pastor to talk about those things, but it is part of the picture. And, and it matters. Paul writes there about those who labor among you and over you in the Lord and who admonish you. He doesn't use titles like he, he starts to use in later letters. He doesn't use titles like, like deacon or pastor or elder. We don't know if this young church even had those kind of folks. But they clearly have some people whose work it is to watch out for, whose work it is to tend for the needs of that whole group 
That's who he's talking about. So let me just say some obvious things, okay? Your, your small group doesn't lead itself. <laughs> and uh, the nursery doesn't organize itself. And the coffee at Common Ground doesn't appear uh, out of thin air setting aside relief funds and then getting those funds to people who need help fast doesn't just happen. The property doesn't mend itself. You get the idea. The church, the church has always, and I don't mean covenant, I mean the church has always, from the very start, looked around and said to certain people, hey, we need someone to look after this work. And we need someone to look after these people. And we need someone to coordinate this effort. And it seems like God has given you the right gifts to do it. Will you do it for us? Paul is telling his friends, don't take those folks for granted. And not just that, he's saying, esteem them very highly in the Lord, in love, because of their work. Because this is what they do. So, you know, say thank you to your small group leader. And uh, say thank you to the person who teaches your kids Sunday school class. Say thank you to the deacons. Because even if you never know who exactly they are helping in quiet, hidden, behind the scenes, you can be certain that they are. They are helping people. These simple gestures and this kind of kind deference is like fuel among a people. It's like food and drink that gives energy to keep going on. And I'll tell you, there's no indication at all that this was not happening at this little church that Paul's writing to. Uh, There is no crisis that Paul is addressing, no crisis of leadership. He's just painting a picture of how to be. And by no means does the work of tending rest solely on the shoulders of the people that have been set aside by a people to do that work. The work of tending, the work of watching out for one another, it's for all of us together. That's where Paul goes next. Be at peace among yourselves, he says to the church. Work not only at reconciliation when you wrong each other, but also to the active contribution of flourishing and to the active contribution of good in this community. Because that's what peace really is in Scripture. That's what peace is. It's not only the absence of hostility or the absence of grievance. That is super important. That is healing. And that is beautiful among a people. We are definitely called to be a people who forgive each other in the way that we have been forgiven. We are definitely supposed to be a people who work as best we can to be reconciled with those who have wronged us and those who we have wronged. But seeking peace also means that we're going to attend to the conditions that made that conflict or that made that trouble start in the first place. Where there is injustice, we work justice. Where there is potential harm, we try to make safe. Where there is a need, we fill it as best as we can. (laughs) Paul says it this way at the end of verse 15, always seek to do good to each other and to everyone. Always do good to one another and to everyone. Church, that's the stuff that makes for peace, this big, fulsome, red-blooded peace that we have been called to. I will say that's also why uh, in verse 26, Paul tells the church to greet each other with a holy kiss. (laughs) 
Greeting people with a kiss was pretty common at that time in that part of the world. It still is in, in lots of parts of the world. Maybe some of you do that too. But in a place like Thessalonica, in a cosmopolitan city like that in the empire, it would have raised a great deal of notice, would have raised a great deal of eyebrows to greet one another across certain social and ethnic and class and economic lines, those lines that carve the first century world up, much like they carve our own world up. But the church has been called as a people to protest those lines. And so the church defiantly and beautifully greeted everyone with a holy kiss across all of those lines that had hardened in that world and ours. It represented the peace. It represented the unity. It represented the reconciliation of the church across deep lines that was hard won at the cross of Jesus that is held in place firmly by the bond of the Holy Spirit. And at some point really early in the second century, I mean really early, this beautiful protest, this eloquent witness, had made its way into the weekly liturgy of the church. Right before the bread and the wine were represented at communion, the people greeted each other in the peace of Christ. Sounds familiar. That's why with our family around the world, we do the same every week too. We'll do it again in a little bit. Now I know we'll probably shake hands or bump fists or do a little wave or just nod like Presbyterians are wont to do. <laughs> but it will still mean that in love, Jesus has made unity and reconciliation and peace available for people like us. That he has made it possible for us to make peace with each other. That he's made it possible for us to make peace in this broken world. That's what it means. And another part of seeking that big, fulsome, red-blooded peace is keeping an eye out for those around us. I love verse 14. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. It appears that there might have been some in that community uh, who were able to work but had chosen not to for some reason. Paul addresses that in the next letter that he writes to this little church. Here he says, admonish them. Say, hey, look, man, work is good. <laughs> God built work into humans. He built work into the whole created order. And part of ticking like you're supposed to tick as a human being is working if you can. It's how we reflect God out in this world. Encourage the faint-hearted, he says. That word that gets translated as faint-hearted could more literally be translated as the ones with little souls. the people who for some reason had been diminished or made small. It was usually used to refer to folks had gone, who had gone through a tragedy or a trauma or who had suffered a loss or who were in the middle of suffering a loss. Keep your eyes peeled for the little soul ones, Paul says. Watch out for them and encourage them. I'm going to tell you the truth, church. We are all of little soul at some point in our lives. That's absolutely true. You're sitting around people right now who are of little soul right now. Maybe you are. And when that happens, we need each other. 
We need to encourage one another. And help the weak, Paul writes. And even if you have to tell that idle guy a thousand times that he should be working, even if you have to encourage the faint-hearted little-souled ones seven days a week, even if helping the weak makes you feel like I'm about to be depleted of every last one of my resources, be patient with them all, he says. He doesn't explicitly make the connection here, uh, but this way of being with each other This way of caring for one another is rooted in the very character of God himself who is described over and over and over and over again in Scripture as merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I mean, if God has shown himself to be anything to people like us, he has shown himself to be patient And this is probably a good place to point out that this picture that Paul is painting of the church also looks a great deal like someone else, too. (laughs) Maybe you start to see the outlines of that person, someone who always flew to the faint-hearted, someone who doesn't break the bruised reeds of the weak but binds them up instead, someone who was patient beyond measure with the most obstinate and obtuse of his disciples, someone who didn't only seek peace but who made peace forever peace for the life of the world by his death and resurrection and ascension. It is the life of Jesus that stands behind the life of the church. It is the life of Jesus that stands behind the life of the church. And it stands behind Paul telling his friends in verse 15 to see to it that no one repays evil for evil. I mean, retaliation It is a stubbornly instinctive sin. We know that's true. It's been present in the human heart. It's been present in our world from the second our first parents fell. Retaliation is as old as the dirt from which Abel's blood cried out to God. Paying back someone who did you wrong with wrong has been twisted into some kind of grotesque honor in lots of places in our world, and the result is this never-ending cycle of violence and pain and misery and suffering and death. And Jesus taught us that it is up to people like us to do all that we are able, as far as we are able, to make it stop. Love your enemies, Jesus said. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus said. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles, Jesus taught us. It was Jesus who, when his executioners raised him up on the cross, prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Paul tells the church to imitate Jesus' non-retaliation. See to it that no one repays evil for evil. Disrupt this corrosive cycle that stands against the logic of your own baptisms. Some of you might remember that in 2017, on uh, Palm Sunday, two churches were bombed in Egypt Almost 50 people were killed in those churches. And the very next evening, Father Bulis George preached a homily to his congregation in Cairo. It was called, A Message to Those Who Kill Us. Here's part of what he said. (laughs) What will we say to them? 
we love you. The message we want to send to you is that we love you. We Christians don't have enemies. We don't have enemies. The Christian does not make enemies because we have been commanded to love everyone. And so we love you. Because this is the teaching of our God that I love you no matter what you do to me. I love you very much. This counter and beautiful way of being has served throughout the history of the church as one of her most eloquent and beautiful voices of witness to the patient and merciful and forgiving love of Jesus. He loved people like us when we were enemies. And our non-retaliation in his name, in the quiet hidden places like our relationships or in the big places where the whole world might be able to see it, our non-retaliation in the name of Jesus holds out hope to even the hardest that they too can be loved, that they too can be forgiven. Church, it's who we are. Rejoice always, Paul tells the church. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Don't put out the fire of the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. This is Paul's picture of the spiritual practices of the church, the disciplines of the church together in worship, apart, alone as individuals or in smaller groups. These are the disciplines of the church, the practices of the church, the things that we do together that cultivates our awareness that God is indeed present with us at all times. It's the practices that we do in order to hear from him, to go, God, what do you have to say to us? There's probably no way for me to accurately describe uh, just how strange and deeply thrilling this would have been to a lot of those people in that church because just a few months before that letter was written, these people had left everyday common first century paganism to follow Jesus. The notion that there was a God they could talk to, not only when they needed something, but at all times, completely foreign to them. The notion that there was a God who who simply didn't just put up with their requests. If they asked them in the right way and did all the right stupid stuff around it, who didn't just put up with it, but who wanted their requests and wanted their thankfulness and wanted them with great desire, foreign. They never dreamed there would be a God like that. That there was a God they didn't have to bribe or to cajole to hear from, but who would freely want to talk to them through the voice of the prophet. A God who had given them good gifts, including his spirit, that enabled them to, to test the stuff around them and to think it through and to decide together what is the good stuff that we're going to hang on to and what is the bad stuff that we're going to get rid of. There's a God like that and he loves me. Never dreamed it. And here they are learning to follow him, learning to love him themselves, and their lives are being totally changed. And Paul is holding up that picture, and he's saying to his friends, and he's saying to us, this is you. (laughs) This is the church, a wildly beautiful presence in a broken world, a peaceful, reconciling, Mutually supportive people with eyes and ears 
and hands open to God and to one another and to the world. People who look like Jesus, people who act like Jesus for one another and for the life of the world. Man, I'm so glad I have people like that all around me. We need people like this all around us all the time. This broken world needs people like this. And you know, on our own, we cannot keep this, this labor up. We cannot keep this work up without flagging on our own. We cannot keep this way of living up. And Paul knows this because he knows himself. <laughs> and so he prays that beautiful prayer in verses 24 and 25. And in praying it, he reminds his friends and us of the good news that we have believed and that we rest in every day of our lives. We don't do it on our own. God does it in us and through us. He is the one who will keep us blameless until the day of Jesus. Because <laughs> the one who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, enthrall us by this picture of something beautiful. and that we would have the eye of faith to be able to believe that that is indeed who we have been called to be and who we are for one another and for the life of the world. We ask that you would help us to rest not in our ability to carry it out without flagging, not in our smarts or creativity, but to rest in you who is faithful, who will do this through us. You will keep us to the end in love. Father, we ask that you would help us to believe this and to be this people so that we'll grow up in our faith and so that through us you can love this broken world around us. And we pray it in his name, Christ's name. Amen.